Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast, a curated series of interviews and discussions highlighting the three shields of orthopedic surgery at Mayo Clinic, clinical practice, research, and education. Welcome back to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast. I'm really excited to talk a little bit more about the, the clinical shield today. And I've got uh, a professor of orthopedic surgery, chair of our uh, division of research, and an adult hip and knee reconstruction specialist, Matt Abdel, on the line today. We're excited to talk to you today about periprosthetic joint infection. Thanks for having me, John. It's, uh, it's an honor. It's a field that's really uh, I've been innovated and revolutionized through the last four decades at the Mayo Clinic by several of my predecessors, now by our current group of hip and knee arthroplasty surgeons. Yeah, and it's something obviously none of us like to talk about. We like to imagine that it has never happened to us or anybody we know, but occasionally um, hip and knee arthroplasty infection happens. As, as we both know, primary hip and knee replacement is one of the most successful operations we have in terms of increasing mobility and improving quality of life of patients but occasionally complications do happen. Um, where does infection lie in the, in the major complications after uh, total hip and knee in, in the modern age? Yeah, it's a really good question. We've got pretty good data on that from three main sources now. The Mayo Clinic Total Joint Registry, which is the most robust registry in the world on hip and knee arthroplasty in regards to details. We've got the AJRR data, which now through the Academy just came out a month ago with the 2020 data already, or the 2020 annual report through 2019. And we've got other large registries. I think it's fair to say that periprosthetic joint infection remains the number one complication after both hip and knee arthroplasty. Um, now for revision, hip and knee arthroplasty, that's not the case. But for primaries, it, it really remains the number one complication. Even though it occurs in small, small percentage, it's still uh, a very big failure mode. Sometimes infection is, is obvious, uh, uh, draining knee wound after surgery, something like that. But um, what's, your, what's your typical workup? What's the typical presentation of, an in, of a patient with a periprosthetic joint infection? Can you walk through some maybe indolent infections and what that looks like in terms of, of the evaluation or, or what would raise your suspicion about infection? Yeah, so standard history and physical exam, of course. But the real thing we want to talk about is on all patients with painful joints, or concern for infection, I'll get an ESR, CRP, screaming inflammatory markers. And I strongly believe in an arthrocentesis of the hip or knee. I think you get a lot of information from that, particularly I'm interested in cell count, differential, and the cultures. Those are the three big areas. I don't use gram stain anymore. At Mayo, we've been very fortunate to innovate in two big areas. Number one are these 16S PCRs. And most recently, particularly credit to Dr. Rob Tell, who's an infectious disease consultant, are these metagenomic shotgun sequencing. So not next generation sequencing, true metagenomic shotgun sequencing, where they can sequence the DNA of all organisms, some that we not even are aware that can happen as periprosthetic joint infection. And that's also from the fluid. So we've got a lot of, lot of resources at our hands. It's just using them appropriately in the appropriate patient. And what's the typical clinical presentation? Obviously, um, let's say let's say uh, in acute uh, total knee and total hip infection. I uh, I'm a shoulder surgeon, so I don't necessarily see hips and knees as much. But I'm assuming it's drainage or redness in the wound. How about chronic periprosthetic joint infection? How do you, how does that present? Yeah, usually it's pain, erythema, swelling. 
Uh, it's totally different than acute, subacute versus chronic stages. Um, sometimes it's obvious we've got a draining sinus tract. They've had uh, fevers, chill, sweat, systemic symptoms. But sometimes it's not obvious. It's still a high-functioning patient with radiographs that look appropriate, but just the inability to fully recuperate from that. So you've got to have a high index of suspicion for any patient, really, in my hands that's got pain. That's, and I'll start that workup. It's always the first workup I'll do. And once I've ruled that out, then I'll go on to other things that can be contributing to the patient's symptoms. And in, in shoulder arthroplasty, the inflammatory markers, ESR and CRP are infection are, are uh, relatively uncommonly elevated or not exactly predictive of infection. Does it still have a role, ESR and CRP, in the workup and management of hip and knee infection? Yeah, it's still our mainstay. You know, uh, I think for the shoulder, and correct me if I'm wrong, P. acne is still a big player, mm -hmm. which is yep. a little more of an indolent bug. It's harder to grow in cultures. It's not very virulent, so you don't see these spikes in ESR, CRP. And we have that, P. acne's in hip and ER, but I've seen similar findings. But most of our organisms are virulent. You will find ESR, CRP changes, aspiration. We've got excellent parameters. We publish just two papers on what to look for for aspiration in an acute setting. Uh, Arlen Hansen had really uh, put cutoffs for chronic infection, what you see in aspiration. So we've got pretty good data that should guide the clinician on diagnosing these patients. So uh, let's dig deeper onto that aspiration, because I think that's going to be uh, for in the shoulder too. It's one of the mainstays of, of really truly making a diagnosis when yep. it's questionable. Let's say, uh, what, what kind of a cutoff are you looking at for cell count? And is it a cell count versus neutrophil percentage? Uh, let's say in the chronic setting, and then uh, can you talk about uh, acute post-operative um, cell counts? Yeah. So uh, great question, John. So I'll group them together, uh, hip and knee arthroplasty for chronic and hip and knee arthroplasty together for acute. Let's talk about chronic. If I put hip and knee uh, together, I'm usually uh, a little more uh, conservative in my numbers. So I get worried once I see about 1,800. So if you look at the MSIS criteria and other published criteria, they say around 3,000 for cell count. I get worried my antennae go up somewhere around 1,800 and 64% neutrophils in that aspiration, both hip and knee, I should say, or. Um, for acute, it's a totally different ball game. And we recently completed two studies, dividing it within the first six weeks post-operative and then six and 12 weeks, that's acute post-operative. And there's acute hematogenous. In those scenarios, the numbers uh, are a little different. So acute post-operative, uh, cell counts 10,000 or above get me worried, kind of in that first six-week period of time. And the neutrophils that are higher, they're in the 80% range. Acute hematogenous, I follow numbers that are still very similar to the chronic infection. So if I someone is doing well, acute symptoms, anything that's 1,800 or above or 64 or 65% or higher for neutrophils, that will bother me uh, for the risk of an acute hematogenous infection. That's great. And it's a perfect segue into what seems to remain fairly controversial, which is what is the role in your current practice for uh, debridement? And um, I'm going to mess up the acronym debridement and antibiotics with implant retention versus yep. explant versus two-stage versus yep. formal one-stage versus quick two-stage. I mean, I think the this world continues to to expand. So let's start with, um, let's say the, um, let's, let's start, we'll, we'll, let's sequentially work. Let's start from acute post-operative yeah. infection, elevated cell count or drainage from the wound. Let's say, um, how are you going to treat that? It's less than two weeks out, something like that. 
Yeah. So let's do acute post-op and let's say within the first four weeks would be the kind of the good definition to work there. If it's a knee, they'll get an irrigation debridement because 98% of knees in the U S are cemented. So it's already well fixed. If it's a hip, I'll do an aggressive irrigation debridement, modular junction exchange and a non-modular junction exchange. So I'll also take out, cause most hips are uncemented, take out the femoral acetabular components, pre-ream, rebroach, and put new ones in. Not doing a one stage, it's just a super aggressive irrigation debridement. In the acute hematogenous patient, so truly short-lived symptoms, formally defined less than two weeks, appropriately defined less than 48 hours, I like to get to them. I'll do an irrigation debridement of both the hip and the knee because those components are well fixed, whether they're cemented or uncemented. Assumingly, they're well fixed. If they're not, I change. Chronic infection is an area of big debate right now in the world particularly with European data on one-stage exchange and irrigation debris with component retention. I personally, and I've got our own internal data to support that, believe that the standard in North America for sure remains a two-stage exchange arthroplasty for chronic periprostatic joint infection of the hip and or knee. That's really helpful. And, and um, one of the things that sometimes comes up uh, when we discuss this, especially in the acute hematogenous uh, case where you're going to do a debridement and uh, retain the components, is the bug that uh, is isolated. But I think the hard part is the question of waiting to see what the bug is versus trying to get in there as quickly as you can. Um, if you're worried about infection, how do you lean one way or the other there? That's yeah, always the toughest situation mm -hmm. is there's an urgency to get into the operating room for the irrigation debridement with component retention based on longevity of symptoms and biofilm but not knowing the organism. What if it's a resistant organism or polymicrobial, even worse? So I always prioritize, John, the symptomatology and timing to get to the operating room. So I'll aspirate, I'll get my cultures, and I'll get them to the operating room doing irrigation debridement. Pragmatically speaking, if the patient does well with that and it comes back a resistant organism, but they're doing well clinically, I'll continue on that course. If the patient is not doing well and it's a resistant organism, I'll have a very low threshold to take them back for uh, a semi-urgent explant, articulating versus non-articulating space or based on the joint soft tissues and bone loss. But that's my workflow from a pragmatic and honest standpoint. Great. Another, another area um, for the surgeons out there who, let's say they're doing some of their own revisions um, and they do a two-stage and they put in new implants. One of the things that seems to be a little bit of shifting sands is how long are you supposed to keep them on antibiotics after that, after the re-implant? And is that based on repeat cultures at the time? So where, where do we sit with that? It's probably the second hottest topic right now in hip and knee arthroplasty globally, not just infection. So there are now multiple series, including a multi-standard randomized clinical trial showing decreased periprosthetic joint reinfection with three months of PO antibiotics after two-stage exchange arthroplasty. Now, the question is, is are you just covering up that period of time and these are going to become positive at one, two, and five years? Are you just kicking the can down the road? Right now, uh, that data is good. We're looking for additional data. What I do is if it's a routine two-stage exchange arthroplasty, intraoperative cultures at reimplantation are normal, and it's a reasonable host, an A or a B host, and good soft tissues, I will not do it. If they are a previous failed two-stage exchange arthroplasty, compromised host, compromised wound, mega prostheses, I will do the three months of PO antibiotics. So it's kind of a very pragmatic A versus B grouping. Um, I think you're going to do well. I don't do it. I'm worried about them. They'll get it. 
I think that's helpful. And certainly it's an area of uh, discussion between us. And we, we have the advantage of having orthopedic infectious yep. disease here who we have these conversations with every day. But I think um, the more and more we see the, the uh, more difficult hosts who have multiple medical problems with recurrent infection, it sure uh, in the shoulder has, has lowered my threshold to continue some uh, PO antibiotics for some time afterwards, just because of the, the stakes are so high in terms of, of further repeat operations in those patients. Yep. So it's an interesting area. And I, we look forward to hearing more about that as you continue to develop that um, aspect of the field. Any technical trips that you, tips that you have in terms of just managing infection, um, let's say between both surgical factors and then irrigations or other solutions that you might add uh, when treating, let's say uh, with an acute one stage or even with a two stage washout? Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of tips and tricks here. So I think number one, you get, it's all about the debridement. I am a stark believer that it is all about the debridement. So what I, I always do it in triplicates. So I'll debride, you know, expose safely, no question about that. You know, on the knee, do a quadriceps dip if you need, the hip extender incision, do osteotomies if you need it. But it's all about the debridement. Then I'll remove the component safely. Then I'll re-debride it. Then I'll irrigate, come back to that go through, do your articulating, non-articulating spacer, and then a third debridement that uh, theoretically I've already got the necrotic and purulent and foreign body out. I'll do that last one. And it's remarkable to me every time I do that in three phases, how I always find incremental necrotic or purulent tissue that I thought I had removed. So number one, it's about the debridement. Number two for irrigants, I am a believer in dilute betadine. That's the only irrigant I use. So I'll do one third of it uh, poured in the wound. Then I'll have it suction out, then a third of it sits in there for three minutes, then I'll do the last third and remove it. And then the final thing are how you manage uh, the soft tissues. You have to have a robust closure. If there's any drainage coming out, you are making that patient who's already susceptible to further polymicrobial infection. So it's got to be a watertight closure with monofilament sutures, and I'll immobilize them. If they're hips, I'll do some sort of abduction brace. And if it's knees, I'll put them in extension for two weeks in a knee immobilizer to let the soft tissues heal and calm. I think that sure makes sense. And I, and I think it's not the uh, splash and dash or the quote unquote washout. It's a little different than a washout. It's a true debridement. If you think that you're going to uh, really help them to eradicate uh, or decrease the burden enough that they can, that they can make it through. Um, uh, just a, a brief point, cause I think this has been really interesting about, in, about prevention of infection. Can you just comment briefly on the ANSEF data out of, um, out of Mayo in terms of infection rates, uh, with and without ANSEF as the preoperative antibiotics? I know it's a little bit of a side bend, but I think it's important for our listeners. No, it's really important. I mean, let's be honest. The reason that surgery has gotten to where it's at is because we went from septic surgery to aseptic surgery with the innovation of aseptic techniques and preoperative antibiotics. And the, an award-winning paper from Mayo looked at patients that had a reported cephazolin allergy and got an alternative and found that they had a starkly higher infection rate for routine type one wounds. And they also found that the vast majority of people who reported a penicillin allergy actually didn't have that allergy. So we are fortunate here, we have a penicillin clinic, literally, if anybody reports that allergy, especially PIP and ER class, we always send them to that clinic the vast, vast, vast majority of those patients are cleared to utilize cefazolin. Uh, so we utilize cefazolin. That has shown, especially the time period, weight-based, first of all, 
and closer to incision, not too close. The sweet spot is probably 15 to 45 minutes prior to incision. Substantially and significantly, statistically, will decrease the risk of periprosthetic joint infection and hip and knee arthroplasty. Yeah, that's super important. And obviously, as somebody like you who does a lot of revision arthroplasty and uh, deals with infection, certainly, um, while we get better at eradicating infection, prevention is the is the place to get this. Yep. The quality of life difference, the cost, and everything else of of dealing with, particularly a two stage uh, revision of a of a joint implant is is um, is certainly a big deal. As we close here, any new treatments that are on the horizon in terms of treatment of uh, periprosthetic joint infection? Yeah, I think the uh, horizon is bright, John. There are three main areas we're really focused on right now. Number one are the area of phage therapy. So these are particular viruses that target bacteria specifically without harming the host, i.e. the patient. Um, that's a very bright area that we're studying intensely at Mayo Clinic. Number two is this further area of irrigants. What's the safest irrigant for the soft tissues, but also disrupt the biofilm in that particular area? And finally, I do think that this area of one stage versus two stage versus irrigation to bring with component retention, retention will evolve on the appropriate individuals to do it, the appropriate techniques to do it, and how we manage them postoperatively with uh, PO antibiotics. Those are probably the big, big three areas uh, of excitement over the next, let's call it one to three years. That's awesome. I've heard, I've heard more and more about uh, phage therapy, but don't know much about it. Can you tell me where the science is? Are we close to using this um, uh, clinically or um, what, what, what phase are we at and what, what exactly does the phage therapy do? Yeah. So phage is intriguing. So phage therapy was actually out before penicillin got discovered. When penicillin came on the market, it was so exciting that they stopped. It was primarily in Poland and Germany. They stopped phage therapy utilize penicillins as did the rest of the world, including North America. It's now resurged onto the scene here with the concerns for antibiotic resistance, being good antibiotic stewards. And it's a virus that targets specific genomes of specific bacteria. So you gotta have a specific bug. You gotta be able to sequence it. There's companies available that do that. And we're in clinical trials right now. We have an ongoing randomized clinical trial at Mayo Clinic, and we've utilized it in numerous patients in compassionate use including multiple patients of my own that I've utilized it in. So we're, um, we need more data, no question about it, but it is in human use. That's really exciting. Well, uh, just to summarize, uh, really uh, nice conversation, uh, Dr. Abdel, but uh, first thing, so it sounds like obviously uh, goals is, number one goal is to prevent infection use, using ANSEF is uh, critical and if uh, even including penicillin testing, so not just uh, trusting that because of the low rate of of uh, true allergies to penicillin. Having a fairly sequential and systematic approach to both clinical evaluation, as well as workup, uh, including an aspiration with this, with a um, several benchmarks in terms of uh, when you would consider um, uh, that joint to be infected or not. And then a uh, thoughtful and deliberate uh, debridement during the time of uh, surgery and uh, uh, particularly paying attention to moving patients to a two stage in the setting of chronic infection seems to be some of the, um, the current thinking. And certainly we're excited to learn more about uh, phage therapy, particularly for these patients in whom we have a hard time getting, the, getting it cleared or, or who, are, um, who are high risk hosts. Anything else for the, for the audience that, that, that you, you want them to know about in terms of infection uh, after total knee, total hip arthroplasty? Those are the big things. Optimize your patients preoperatively 
deliver a reproducible, reliable patient to pack you. That's efficient surgery. It's done safely. It's good soft tissue management. And finally, stay close to your patients. If a patient's having an issue and there's concern for periprostatic joint infection, evaluate them. ESR, CFP, and when appropriate, aspiration. And those three tips and tricks will really help guide you in, in this area of infection management. Super helpful, Matt. Thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for the hard work uh, dealing with this uh, very difficult uh, patient population, but one that uh, we certainly have to continue to help as, as we go forward and uh, continue to do a high volume of hip and knee arthroplasty. Pleasure. Thanks, John. 